This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily for Friday, the 22nd of May, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Tonight, we continue our series on spyware and technology abuse. Today, we learn some ways that you can fight back and also how are courts handling this situation. And we have a book review from Nicholas Kamenyu-Sandri. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy 94.9 COVID-19 update for Friday the 22nd of May. For the first time since the pandemic began, National Cabinet will not be meeting to discuss Australia's response to COVID-19 and plan for the future. Another major change is the Chief Medical Officer will no longer be giving daily briefings on the current situation. Instead, the briefings will happen every two or three days. These changes are reflective of the calming situation in Australia. If a large second wave were to occur, we could expect meetings and conferences to resume with more regularity. Federal opposition believes the politeness and cooperation between the leaders in the National Cabinet is falling apart due to the state border issue. For the past week, New South Wales and the Federal Government have been fighting with Queensland and Western Australia over border closures. Suggestions of a constitutional change have made the rounds, with One Nation Senator Pauline Hanson saying she may take the issue to the High Court to force the reopening. Local councils will be able to apply for additional funds from the federal government who have announced a new $500 million fund to help stimulate local economies. Minister for Local Government Mark Coulton says the criteria for receiving funds is wide, but one of the stipulations is that projects must use materials from local businesses. The federal government will also bring forward the $1.3 billion annual grant payment. Britain is planning an international quarantine which many suggest is too late in coming to have any real impact on case numbers. The British government has backpedalled on giving special exemption to France amid criticism that special deals undermine the goals of a quarantine. Australia is pushing to be made exempt on the basis that it is a low-risk country due to low case numbers. Some ministers in British Parliament appear to be keen to make an exception for Australia. A man in the United States is being charged for defrauding his employer by lying about being diagnosed with COVID-19. The lie led to the company being shut down for cleaning and made other employees go into quarantine. In all, the stunt cost the company around $100,000. He has since been fired and is awaiting trial. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Yesterday we spoke about technology abuse and how it can be used in family violence situations. And today we have some information on how you can fight back. Now, this is a a particularly sensitive topic. Um, We've got resources available if you need to talk to someone or if you're in a situation yourself, go to joy.org.au slash support or 1-800-RESPECT, 1-800-RESPECT.ORG.AU. It's a national 24-hour hotline.
So uh, one instance was was uh, a lady who lived in um, an affluent area of Melbourne. Uh, she had split up with her partner. Uh, the partner was fairly was very IT savvy, and um, actually the partner had a large IT company, and had since sold the IT company to a major telco and was contracted as a consultant to that telco. So he's really IT savvy. So they've split up, and um, she's gone her way, but she's remained in the home. But it's clear that the home is set up so that the, the perpetrator of the violence can actually remotely look at the cameras. She had uh, a dozen cameras at the house. Mm. But three or four of the cameras were inside the home and they actually had voice recording as well. So oh the perpetrator God. could sit to the side and see what she was doing. So um, watching through the cameras, um, listening to the audio in certain parts of the home, um, could also um, read her emails through IP addresses because how it works is if you can hook into someone's Wi-Fi, you can hook into their Wi-Fi and you can then see what they're doing on their computers. So the, the mistake a lot of a lot of people make and women make is that um, they don't change passwords. So a perpetrator leaves the home, they don't change the password, they keep the password to the Apple Cloud and the, I, the Apple ID and the Wi-Fi and they, the perpetrators can hook in. So this perpetrator hooks in remotely, um, very IT savvy, She's being watched inside, listened to inside. Um, she would email the gardener, for instance, and say, um, can you come and do the garden today? And the gardener would um, say, I'll go be there at 2 o'clock. But before he gets there, the gardener cancels because he received an email saying, don't come now. But it wasn't actually her that had sent the email, for instance. Oh but she'd God. go to open the gate to get out of the house and she could get out. Or, she'd, or the garage door would go up and down, or the um, air conditioner would come on off at all hours of the night because it was the, the smart home was controlled remotely. There was something else with that one too. Um, I think that's right. When our technicians were on site looking at the cameras and changing some IP passwords, every time that uh, Nick would change the password, someone remotely would hop in and change another one. So the IT technology was huge, yeah. Much of our show is focused on the impact of tech abuse. So what can people do to fight back? I asked Rosalie O'Neill from the Office of the Children's E-Safety Commissioner where people can get advice. Yes, there is. We have um, the E-Safety Women website. It's esafety.gov.au forward slash women. And there's a lot of advice there um, for going online, using social media, sort of of on-life admin stuff, if you like, banking, shopping and so on, how to do that safely and securely. And there's um, a very important section about if you are in a a DV situation and you're experiencing tech-facilitated abuse, these are the kinds of things you need to look out for. Just bearing in mind, our website, we've just gone through a fairly substantial review and we're hoping to launch a refreshed version of the website in a month or two. So... It's current, it's useful, but it'll be even more current and even more useful in a month. Um, Um, And I'd just say, coming back to, we were funded under the Women's Safety Package to Stop the Violence to build this program, but I I do want to stress, domestic and family violence and tech-facilitated abuse happens to anybody. It can happen to anybody. So the advice there is applicable to everybody who might be experiencing it. It's not just women. It's, you know, across the the population. Mm. We also asked Rosalie, what people who think they might be the victim of tech abuse should do when it comes to their devices? Well, there's a couple of um, very important things to do, you know, 
at the first, and, and that is to, if possible, use a clean device at a safe location, one that the perpetrator partner has not had access to. It may not be safe to not use your old device, um, but if you're trying to find out information about what to do and make plans about um, you know, your future with this, it's best to use some kind of clean device, so either the, the phone or computer of a very trusted friend or the phone or computer at somewhere like a library where you know the perpetrator partner hasn't had a chance yeah. to, um, to, to get access to it. Um, the other thing we suggest is setting up a new email account just for safety planning, but only set that up and use that from the safe device. I mean, the idea is to stay as far as possible away from devices that may be compromised um, to make sure that you're not going to alert the perpetrator mm -hmm. that you're getting help or even thinking of leaving because it's at that point of deciding to leave a relationship that the risk to the woman, the physical risk to the woman does escalate quite significantly. Um, and then generally, the, the, the safety and security in advice that we all should practice, actually, and that is setting up passwords and passcodes on all our devices, mm -hmm. um, setting, checking the privacy and security settings on each um, each device to make sure we're not giving away location um, and that kind of thing. Uh, the use of Bluetooth, um, turning that off unless you're actually using it. Yep. Uh, and in these cases, we do ask that they um, ask their friends and family, their trusted friends and family, not to tag um, the woman or her children in um, Facebook posts, for example, or photos or check, check them in just so that they're not inadvertently giving away information about where they're now located. Arian Potts also wanted to know how people who are concerned that family or friends might be experiencing tech abuse can assist. This is a little bit of a sort of left field question, but um, I had a situation where I knew a friend was doing this to his partner and the partner mm -hmm. kept asking, you know, what's going on with my phone? And I kept telling the partner, you know, you've got to talk to you've got to talk to him about this because, you know, I feel really uncomfortable and, you know, sorry, I keep banging something. Um, so if you know that this is happening to someone close to you, how what's a good way to address that? Without, I don't know. Yeah, that, that is that is tricky because you don't want to um, put them at greater risk, for example. Um, but making them, making sure that they're aware that a you're on their side and you believe them. If yeah. odd things are happening to their devices, a lot of the issue is that that women have great trouble getting people to believe her that these things are happening. Mm -hmm. um, but to, to point her to where the advice and resources are for. Um, for looking at her phone yeah. or computer or that kind of thing to make sure that it hasn't been compromised or to how to turn on the, the security settings and the privacy settings. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, often with, it, with, with a friend or a family member, it's a, a matter of support and being there and understanding and listening, um, but gently pushing towards where the um, professional help is. Annabelle Daniel, the CEO of Women's Community Shelters, wanted to be clear, though, that the answer isn't to just tell victims of tech abuse to get offline. You know, so often the advice to women, you know, particularly if they've been stalked and harassed on social media is, well, just get off, you know, just just leave. Um, and from my point of view, it's, it's that's a way of um, making sure that, that 
you know, it's it's the victim that's erased from the space that they're actually entitled to be part of. You know, no one should have to erase their their identity or, or their online safety because of abuse or harassment by somebody else. And so from my point of view, I think there's there's practical steps that you can put in place to, um, you know, to continue to safely navigate um, you know, online spaces without, uh, you know, without disclosing locations or, or with, you know, doing so in, in less risky circumstances. You know, obviously in terms of the tracking stuff, you know, there, there are absolutely steps that, that can be taken, and, but it's very much the case. It depends on, on what the individual's experiencing and a, a, a bit of an audit of, of what's going on. And often technology can be helpful to those who are experiencing family violence as a defence, something Monica Blizzard from KHQ explained to Toby Halligan. Um, I was wondering, uh, because a lot of this, a lot of what we talked about, like obviously it relates to domestic violence and family violence more generally, Do you, are you seeing the, the use of digital technology to actually hold perpetrators to account? Like say, for example, tracking their location to establish, well, you actually have been hanging around outside this person's house or you have been sending these messages. Are courts and police using that, do you think, to the best possible, you know, are they maximising the benefits of that? Look, it's hard to know what the police do. We don't know until they actually enforce the breach. But I can say to you that the advice I give my clients is to use the technology as a defensive weapon. So when I have clients who have separated and they're living under the one roof and I'm fearful, I'm worried about what might transpire, I tell them to download a recording device. I tell them to have their phone on them at all times. Mm -hmm. And I tell them that if they are suspicious that anything's going to happen, to have that recording happening. Because Mm. the only way I can actually prove something has happened is with the technology. Yes. Ironically. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I guess this is part of this, you know, technology does cut both ways and in circumstances where it is being misused by perpetrators for criminal purposes, there are ways that fighting back's the wrong kind of language in these contexts, but, you know, you people can use it to protect themselves. Or what's, what's really interesting, though, so if we get an intervention order for a victim, as part of the standard orders, it will say... Um, the perpetrator is not to keep them under surveillance. Um, Often the perpetrator will react by getting an intervention order against the victim and it will say the same thing. So sometimes the law will actually stop you using that technology. Um, But in a situation where you have no orders in place, absolutely, we have to advise our clients to use the technology. It's the only way. Otherwise, it's one person's word against the other and the court does not assist in that scenario it's a matter of pushing the client to have a final hearing huge legal expenses cross-examined in the witness box and then the judge will decide who's telling the truth that's a long journey we've been exploring the issue of tech abuse and much of the picture has been quite grim we wondered though whether the larger issue of family violence has been getting worse or better and we asked monica from khq like this is a big meta question and and tech stuff does feed into this are we getting better at handling this space because it seems like for for my whole life now there have been people saying this actual this area of law is kind of broken it doesn't help victims of domestic violence it fails people in so many ways it's really expensive it's really hard (laughs) the police and courts aren't responsive enough do you think are things getting better 
I've kind of put you on the spot there, but like, are things getting better? Like over the course of your career, have you seen them get better? I have to tell the truth and the answer is no. I mean, there have been recent developments. So there was a recent change to the legislation um, so that a victim uh, does not, cannot be cross-examined by the perpetrator if they are unrepresented. And that's a huge victory. I mean, one of the cases that moved me very early in my career was a case where I had to sit through and watch my client, who was a, an extreme victim of family violence, be cross-examined by her her partner um, such that she was physically sick whilst giving evidence so it was quite a traumatic experience for her and and for everybody and to know that that doesn't happen anymore is is a huge victory but that's you know been close to 20 years to get that across the line the biggest issue i think is early intervention it's just not possible we don't have enough funding for judges we don't have enough the judges don't have enough time to intervene early we have cases where there is urgency and we go to the court and we try and get an urgent hearing date and they're not back um, the judges don't have the time. So um, on the one hand, I think I could say, you know, there are significant problems with how our court systems are dealing with these cases. But on the other hand, it, it is under-resourced. It needs more funding. Um, mm. And if judges, if we had more judges and we had more availability, early intervention would be a possibility. And that would dramatically change the outcomes, I think. Mm. Is, do you get a sense that courts and police are keeping up with the, the shift to digital? No, I don't. Um, I have a real frustration with um, how family violence is managed uh, by our police uh, because what I see and what I experience with clients is inconsistency uh, in their approach. Um, the ability to get an intervention order is a key strategy in keeping people safe. Um, I do have people say to me it's just a piece of paper and, and ironically it is just a piece of paper but it's a piece of paper that can force the police to act. Um, so it's a very important piece of paper and it's really the only legal step we can take to um, stop someone coming to an address or stop someone uh, attending a school or um, and it's a piece of paper that's recognised by all authorities but when it's breached... What I'm finding is that client that the police, sorry, are sometimes failing to follow through with those breaches, where even when they're serious. And what I'm finding is, um, on other occasions, minor breaches are being pursued um, to the disadvantage of, of the family. Because I'm thinking of one one case in particular I have at the moment where there is actually CCTV of a perpetrator approaching my client in a public area, uh, and the police have basically confirmed that they don't see that as a breach because in the CCF footage, the client actually approaches the person and says, don't follow me, don't come near me. But the intervention order says you cannot contact or approach. Mm. So it's a clear breach from my perspective. We have video evidence and yet it's not being pursued. So there's a real frustration mm. from my point of view because these... Orders are meant to keep people safe. Mm -hmm. They can only keep people safe with police intervention mm -hmm. and that police intervention is not consistent. And thanks to Toby Halligan, Saishri and Nicholas Kamenyasandri for bringing us that report. If you're concerned about family violence in your own situation, 1-800-RESPECT is a great place to go. That's 1-800-RESPECT on the phone or 1-800-RESPECT.org.au. We also have a number of resources available on the Joy website that you can find, that you can track down. <clears throat> we also have a number of resources on the Joy website. Head to joy.org.au slash support.
Welcome back. It's Friday, and we've got a book review, this time of a classic from Nicholas Kamenyusandri. So today I want to recommend an absolute brick of a novel. It's The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. This novel is 1,500 pages long, but it actually wasn't originally published in that form. It was published in a magazine in five parts. So the way that people originally read The Count of Monte Cristo back when it was first published was probably in this much the same way that uh, we get entire TV shows on whatever streaming service you use today, where they release the entire one. You can binge it all in one go, or you can read it chapter by chapter. I'm sorry, you can watch it episode by episode, much like a person would have read Count of Monte Cristo chapter by chapter. Um, and then, you know, you can take a break and discuss it with your friends while you wait for the next installment to be released. And I would recommend reading The Count of Monte Cristo like that, because if you try and read all 1500 pages in one go, believe me, it's going to feel like an absolute monster. The way that I read it is I read about the first act and then took a break and then read the second act and then took a break and then the third act. And it's not actually split into acts, but it's kind of easy to tell. Like the end of the first act might be when Edmund escapes from the Chateau d'If. And then, you know, it's just, it has natural stopping points, basically, where, you know, you can reasonably guess when it would have been segregated into its various magazine uh, installments. Um, but The Count of Monte Cristo stars good boy Edmund Dantes. He is just the perfect lad. Um, and it is actually a little bit absurd how perfect he is. Like, he's got a wife, or I suppose a fiancé, who really, really loves him, and he's just a, such a handsome man. Oh my god, there's a line in this book. I don't have the book on hand with me right now, but there was a line in it that described Edmund Dantes as something like the most perfect specimen, or sorry, a more perfect specimen of a man could scarcely be imagined. Uh, so he's just absolutely handsome. At the beginning of the novel, he's a sailor and his ship arrives back at port. And um, the company that owns the ship is like, what happened to the captain? And the first mate, who is not Edmund Dantes, says, oh, the captain died of a disease. I forget which disease it is, but the captain died of a disease. And the first mate is describing that, oh, Edmund Dantes did this incredible thing. And the uh, company is like, well, we will promote Edmund Dantes to the new captain. And the first mate is like, what? I'm supposed to be the new captain. And so the first mate is now super jealous of Edmund. Uh, in the meantime, Edmund's fiance is being pined over by her cousin, Ew. Um, that's how you know he's a bad guy. And this cousin is like, you know, I'm so jealous of Edmund because I wanted to marry my cousin. Uh, and so he's a scoundrel and he's absolutely evil. Um, and just the difference between the good guys and the bad guys in this novel is so absurd. Like everyone who's a good person in this novel is just this shining example of moral integrity, while everyone who's a bad guy in this novel is just evil and, you know, absurdly cartoonishly selfish and jealous. So Danglars, the first mate who is jealous of the fact that Edmund became captain, and Fernand Mondego, who is uh, jealous of 
Edmund's marriage to his cousin both get together and they're like, we want to get rid of Edmund Dantes. How do we do it? And so they frame him as part of a Bonaparte conspiracy um, against the king. So he's now an anti-monarchist. Edmund is arrested and thrown in the Chateau d'If, which is a real prison in France. And... He spends 13 years in there. Um, in the novel, no, everyone is just so polite and moral and, and wonderful. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's absurd. There's this scene later on after Edmund escaped. Where, where, and, this, and this is, like, so difficult to imagine today. Um, Edmund returns to, like, the old sailing company, and the man who used to employ him, uh, a ship has returned home without any of its cargo because it got, um, you know, lost in a storm or whatever. And the sailors are like you know, hey boss, we're willing to go without pay because we know that this is really expensive for you to lose so much cargo. And then the boss is like, oh no, you can't go without pay. I have to pay you even if it bankrupts me. And then you can find other work elsewhere, but you have to be paid. And the sailors are like, no, we don't want you to go under. You you can not pay us for, for this trip. You know, the cargo was lost and we're sorry about that. So just don't pay us. And then the boss is like, no, we'll pay you. I will. I have to pay you. And I'm just reading this scene of them going back and forth. And I'm like, everyone in this novel is so nice, except for the bad guys. So obviously what happens is Edmund escapes from prison. Uh, he discovers a treasure, like a hidden buried treasure on the Isle of Monte Cristo, uh, crowns himself the Count of Monte Cristo, and goes on an epic quest for revenge. And that's the bulk of the novel. So the bulk of the novel is him tracking down the people who wronged him and getting revenge in the most elaborate, most, you know, justice way possible. Ironic justice. Um, where he tracks them down and doesn't just kill them, but he makes them suffer and makes them watch the destruction of everything they ever did. <laughs> and like you know he he ends up becoming almost the cartoon villain that he uh that he that the novel so vilified at the beginning um but yeah so it's an absolute it's the classic tale of revenge this novel is fun it's also surprisingly really easy to read for an old classic like you can compare this book to something like dracula frankenstein dorian gray it's a lot of the old classics and this is actually way way easier to read than those classics even though it was written, you know, about the same time or even earlier than some of them. Yeah, it's it's basically old-timey popcorn fiction. It's an adventure novel. It's a thriller. It's a revenge tale. It's a swashbuckling adventure with pirates and treasure hunting and elaborate revenge plans and prison escapes. And, you know, it's just this... It's 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 fun. It's like one of the old fun novels that you can still read today and it still be fun. It's massive. I wish I could talk about it more, but I only have so many minutes and the book is 1500 pages. So go and read it. Uh treat it as like a big thing. Like treat it like Lord of the Rings, like you know, it's going to take a lot of time to get through. Uh but feel free to just read it in installments uh if if you can and just, you know, go back to it every now and again and and enjoy it i i really liked it i hope you really like it when i bought it at the bookstore the cashier told me it was her favorite book of all time and if that's not enough of a recommendation i don't know what is so there you have it the count of monte cristo by alexander dumas it's old it's good read it love it enjoy it hire it from your library buy it from a bookstore uh order it online thanks for listening 
Thanks, Nick. That's all for us for this week. I'd like to thank D. Mason, Emily Johnson, Nicholas Kamenu-Sandry, Rachel Tyler-Jones, Jordan Johnstone, Toby Halligan, and Saishri for their help this week. It's much appreciated. I'm your host and executive producer, Arian Potts, and we'll be back on Monday. Mahalo. Former is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.